to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the neuroscientist Christopher Timmerman. Join us in a wide-ranging discussion about psychedelics and the role on the spiritual path, as well as in preparing for the end of life. How can we use these agents to remove the fear of death, and how do they relate to near-death experiences? Is it actually true to say that death is a psychedelic journey? Chris shows us how we can find death in life's experiences and how the psychedelic trip and death are both processes of radical deconstruction. If someone is afraid of death, what's the best way to use these agents? And is duality and the sense of self a construct? Is this what falls apart in reports of ego dissolution with psychedelics? Do these drugs also construct experiences? And are the experiences merely comforting delusions? How do we know they're true? Dr. Timmerman also talks about the entropic brain and the heightened connectivity that takes place with these agents. Are psychedelic experiences due to a reduction in brain activity, what's called the reducing valve, or an enhancement of brain activity? And how about the importance of set and setting? Can we use these agents to explore the nature of mind and reality? And what exactly is the promise and peril of the psychedelic renaissance? The conversation turns to the importance of preparation and integration and how to avoid to become a state junkie. How does one transform states into traits? And what exactly is psychedelic-assisted meditation practice? How about psychedelic apprenticeship? Chris finally discusses the clinical and therapeutic implications of his research and why he's so excited about the future of this new field. See for yourself why Dr. Timmerman is one of the brightest voices in this cutting-edge field of scientific research. Hey, welcome everybody to the Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is a friend and a remarkable neuroscientist, Christopher Timmerman. So as usual, I'm going to read an official biography of this remarkable individual, and then we're going to jump into some really cool topics. So Christopher Timmerman obtained a bachelor's in psychology in Santiago, Chile, and a master's in cognitive neuroscience in Italy. He's currently a postdoc at Imperial College London at the Center for Psychedelic Research, where he leads the DMT Research Group, specializing in the potent psychedelics NNDMT and 5-MeO-DMT and their effects in the human brain and consciousness. His empirical and theoretical work focuses on the neuroscience, psychiatry, psychology, pharmacology, beliefs and ethics of psychedelics, their relationship to consciousness and applications in mental health. His work has been covered in BBC, CDC, Wired, The Times, and The Guardian. He is also the director of the Foundation for the Study of Human Consciousness in Chile. So, Chris, it's so great, my friend, to hang with you for a few minutes. I mean, what a delight. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for the invitation, Andrew. It's a, it's a real pleasure to just, yeah, have the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, All right. So, and a, and a real pleasure to be in this podcast. So, thank you very much. Welcome, welcome. Um, Chris and I had the opportunity just a little bit under a year ago to spend nearly a week together at a Stanford-sponsored event at the, the extraordinary Esalen Institute in the, in the California. So that was really fun time. And then we hooked up again just a couple months ago at this massive um, psychedelic conference here in Denver. They had like 12,000 participants and some 300 presenters. So we're talking about it as a kind of Woodstock of psychedelics. And, and so, Chris, 
Um, boy, so much to talk about, but I, I'm very curious just to kind of get things going here a little bit. What is it that drew you in, into this type of work that's really on the edge of science, literal neuroscience? What, what magnetized you to be a, a pioneer in this particular topic area? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think the, um, the, the sources of what drew me are, are really, I think, um, I think that's very linked to my personality. I think that there's an element of introspection in the way that I've always been. And I've always been extremely curious about how the mind operates, how the mind works. So really that's my, that's my initial passion. That, that is my nature in many ways. And so from there to the study of ex- consciousness or experience is really just a tiny step in my mind. And so that led me to study psychology and then neuroscience. And then the other aspect that uh, kind of complemented that, that element of, of understanding uh, the nature of the mind is that I am from Chile and Latin America. And the culture there is very much an in-between culture between Western perspectives and indigenous perspectives. Uh, a good example of that in-between is the literary movement of magical realism, which is precisely about that sort of confluence and marriage between these two broad worldviews. Um, so in that, um, I found that psychedelics and psychedelic-containing plants, their history um, and their current applications in, in science were were really a neat expression for me to try to develop an understanding of the mind with these two large perspectives or origin points that I also come from. Well, that, and you, and the pedigree from that country is really quite remarkable because Francesco Varela, right? I mean, is he not Chilean? I knew him um, way back when he was just starting the mind and life events. He used to come to Naropa University. Um, and so you, you come from a, a really powerful lineage of amazing thinkers, right? Well, he's he's one of the main main inspirations. Actually, um, his view of the mind is, um, in my mind, uh, an an immense contribution to contemporary neuroscience, uh, psychology, and, and consciousness science in general. Um, and I think a lot, you know, can be done to to fully understand the reach of his vision. And um, and yeah. And I think that there's interesting revitalizations of his work in recent times, which are really exciting. So, yeah, I mean, his book, The Embodied Mind, arguably could be one of the leading launch um, texts for the whole cognitive science revolution. I mean, that was such a pivotal, seminal text that he kicked out somewhat 25, 30 years ago. And so I'm curious, Chris, you know, it, it's very interesting, this this wonderful young breed of, of intrepid um, psychonauts is it a fair question to ask you um, to what extent do you dance between third person and first person approaches to this? In other words, are, are you exclusively working in these dimensions from an empir- uh, empirical third person point of view? Or to what extent do you actually use the laboratory of your own mind, the laboratory of your own experience um, with agents like these? Well, the the research that 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 we do in general, at least at the DMT group and and many other colleagues are now embracing a, a similar approach is precisely about 
combining third and first person approaches. Um, it is what we would call the second person approach in general, right? In which, um, the, the essential idea is that the first person approach benefits from a third person approach from empirical science. And empirical science benefits from the study of human experience. Now, that first person experience is not, uh, something that necessarily happens in the mind of the, you know, researcher themselves, but something that we invite when we have our subjects in the lab, in the lab environment. So what we try to do is really invite their experience of these compounds are studied in a rigorous manner so that we can have a better understanding of the mind and brain, not just in psychedelic states, but broadly uh, the mind and brain and how they operate. Uh, the idea is that psychedelics really do provide an opportunity to investigate that in a more detailed way. In a very potent way, right? I mean, the, the capacity to induce these these states um, in such a short period of time is is quite something. So this topic is so so vast. There's so much that we can discuss, but the one I, I want to focus on, at least at the outset, because this is one of my main interests, is the relationship or the applicability of these entheogens, these psychedelics, um, for near death experiences, for end of life studies, to understand what actually might be taking place. Um, in the brain as a person is transitioning. So talk to us a little bit about your work there. Was that, was that just a corollary of what your general interests were, or was there a particular directive that invited you to explore these agents in relationship to, to death and near death experiences? Yeah. Well, I always find that the, that the work in palliative care and psychedelics was, was very beautiful. Um, this, this idea that somehow we could visibilize the process of death. Um, we can become aware of it and therefore we can provide, um, people with a, with a better process of death, um, with the use of psychedelics. I always found it was, um, yeah, a very poetic sort of thing that was happening with these compounds. Uh, the idea, all these studies coming out from John Hopkins and NYU that psilocybin could be used, uh, in people with distress who are having a terminal illness. Um, so I always found those, those findings and, and the related studies that happened in the fifties and sixties very, very exciting. Uh, and very much, I think related to that, there is this, these reports, these findings, you know, people who use DMT that mention that the experience has an ambience of death for some reason. Uh, you have, the use of ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, the translation of it is the vine of the dead. Uh, so the connection between death and psychedelics is, is an old one. Um, you know, in, in, in this kind of like reversion of the Tibetan book of the dead, uh, Leary, Alper and, and Metzner, uh, really speak about the psychedelic experience as a, as a death experience of sorts. So there was that, that interest and, and really the intuition was that in these psychedelic states, uh, something is being shown, something around the, the dynamic, the, the dynamic nature of things, right? Mm -hmm. The impermanence of things, um, that somehow led to many people, I think, to appraise that experience as that relating to death, mm -hmm. right? Uh, kind of like this parallel between change and and death death of things in a way right and yeah. uh, sorry, no, 
No, no, please continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. And, and in a way, I think that that sort of like intuition remains there. And I think what led that specific aspect of the DMT research to compare it with near-death experiences, I think relates to that very much, uh, that at a phenomenological level, there is all this stuff going on, and it's so fast, uh, and it's so intense, that I think it leads... Um, it, it generates a state in many individuals that somehow lead them to relate that it's an experience of death and dying in a way. Yeah, I mean, I was I was struck by in one of your papers, um, and I can't remember which one, where it actually may have been a summary in an article summarizing your work, but um, paraphrasing it, that death, can death in fact be seen as a psychedelic journey? And I, I was struck by this because I mean, you know, I, I come principally from the Tibetan Buddhist approach to end of life, and it's a really deep, deep um, interest and passion of mine. And there's one of the classic texts here, uh, Chris, is by Trungpa Rinpoche, the title of which is Journey of the Mind. And it's really interesting when you talk about psychedelics as mind manifesting. And, I mean, even etymologically, it's connected to that. So how how far can we go with saying something like death is a psychedelic journey. I mean, is is that too much of a stretch? I mean, how far how far are these correlations? These so yeah. So I would say that yes. I mean, that there is a um, there is a speculative sort of thing that you know we have we produce DMT naturally in our own bodies, and we have a good amount of research suggesting that that is the case. And then we have these experiences of DMT. That when we've measured it with psychometrics or when colleagues have met, uh, measured it with qualitative methods, you know, these themes of death pop up, right? So we have this correlative aspect to it, right? These reports of death in these experiences or, or feelings of death. Um, and then similarities with near death experiences, right? The idea of a life review of going through a tunnel. The idea of overwhelming sense of peace and serenity sometimes very much similar to the experience of death and dying. But we're also doing some actually quite recent research where we've uh, asked people who have had near-death experiences to also talk to us about their psychedelic experiences. And we've seen a bit of difference there. So we've seen that, for example, in the psychedelic experience, there's more visuals. More visuals. More visuals, right? There's more of these fractals, for example, and, and geometries that are so typical in, in many, many psychedelic experiences. Whereas in near-death experiences, what seems to be more prevalent as a sensory effect is a, sen- is a feeling of disembodiment. Yeah. Right. People leaving their bodies. And we found that there was a strong uh, relationship between near-death experiences and psychedelic experiences when it comes to these mystical type effects or effects related to spiritual-like uh, quality of the experience. Um, so the, there is an overlap, but there are some differences. Now, if I would speculate about, speculate about this overlap, the spiritual quality of the experience, these are the aspects of the experiences that are somehow a bit more detached from phenomenology itself. When you look at mystical questionnaires, you know, all of these are narratives about certain aspects of the experiences that many times are somehow flooded in or filled in after the experience has occurred. Uh, you have an experience of oneness, you have an experience of ego dissolution, 
And then how that is interpreted as a mystical experience, I think, is very much dependent on the culture in which these experiences are situated. So it could be that, you know, I'm still very open to the possibility that these experiences could be somehow similar, but also somehow different. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not there's a surge of endogenous DMT being released in the brain when people are actually experiencing death is something that we have no good evidence yet for. So this remains speculation. Yeah, but what a ripe area for research, right? I mean, uh-huh, I mean yeah. It's so, but it, it seems like uh, one of the most common threads, um, at least in my study of the literature, is this kind of deconstructive um, narrative. You know, I mean, the, the the fact that the default mode network, which is you, you could say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that in conjunction with the salience network are, are probably the two strongest neurological correlates to to ego structure, right? And so is it not the case that when one has a psychedelic experience that that default mode network um, is vastly reduced or even shuts down altogether? And so maybe talk to us a little bit about what happens in terms of the, you mentioned ego dissolution, the, the whole narrative of deconstruction, because obviously in, in the, in the death trajectory, that's largely what's taking place is this demolition derby, right? Of going right. In, in the wisdom traditions, it would be the way they would talk about it is basically going from gross to subtle to extremely subtle dimensions of mind. Um, and right, so there, yeah. does, there does seem to be this kind of, um, uh, whether you, whether you talk about it metaphorically as ascent or, or descent, but this kind of dropping into, you know, they talk, they use the word rangba, the mind falling into itself. Right. Yeah. Does that speak to you a little bit in terms of what oh, you're? A hundred percent. I mean, this is one of the things that I'm most fascinated now these days. You know, this big question about do psychedelics actually reveal aspects about the mind, right? The etymology of psychedelics, mind revealing substances. And there's a lot of discussion in the field right now if that is truly the case. So one of the perspectives is that, you know, psychedelics actually truly reveal something. We just need to have the right methods to do that. The other approach is, well, you know, psychedelics are just producing a hallucination, delusions. And instead of deconstructing these models of the mind, you're just somehow, you know, having an illusion of an alternative model that seems real, but somehow, um, yeah, is is not true or is not more fundamental or anything like this. Uh, I think when we look at the most extreme psychedelic experiences, such as those induced by 5-MeO-DMT, which is a substance related to DMT, but it's different in its phenomenological qualities. Um, some of the reports that we've been gathering from individuals is that it seems to be pointing towards a stance of radical deconstruction. We're not just the narratives of self are being taken out of the picture, but then also lower narratives and lower models are also being deconstructed. Models concerning sensory qualities of the experience as well. And what the reports are some, somehow showing us just this feeling of being alive. Uh, nothing is being perceived. There's no images. There's no sensations in the body. There is simply a basic core feeling of aliveness, which would be, you know, it's very similar to what philosopher Thomas Metzinger calls this minimal phenomenal experience that has been also Drawn comparisons with non-dual states of meditation, uh, maybe jhana, advanced jhana states in in tantric uh, traditions, 
And uh, this is an an, act, uh, an area of active research in our group. Um, we are, you know, doing these experiments with 5-MeO-DMT. We're interviewing individuals who practice non-dual states. And we're really trying to get at the core of these phenomenal characteristics to really understand if these altered states actually allow us to find something meaningful about the mind. Yeah. Something it, core, something fundamental. Well, let's, that, this, I mean, like this is super interesting because how about this is, 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 is a hypothesis. Talk about something fundamental that, um, we what often is use altered states of consciousness, uh, transforming into non-ordinary states of consciousness. But I'm curious, how, how would, how would the science change, if at all, if we had this completely backwards? How, how would it change if this is the altered state? That what we know is the dualistic, over-the-counter, consensual reality. I would actually conjecture that this is the altered state. This, this is the temporary experience. It's only been going on for so long that we think this is the baseline experience. And so I would, I would conjecture. And again, I'm curious if this has any traction with you that when we subsend, drop into these states, we're actually cutting through, dropping, cutting through into the more natural state. This is the altered state. These agents point out the, the true dimensions of the mind. I mean, does that have any traction in your world, both empirically and, and uh, personally? Well, it's, it's intriguing. I think, um, because it also, I think it, Somehow the, the proposal that you're saying also, I feel it interacts also with culture and the way that our cultural narratives shape our ordinary phenomenal experience, even, even to the core moment to moment ex- experience. And I think it could be that somehow the dualistic, um, narrative of the mind has gained so traction that it has governed and led us into this sort of experience that we have of things. It's very difficult to me to answer what is true with a capital T when it comes to this, because um, th- there's no other reference point for me. I- I'm not an advanced practitioner, so I don't, I cannot really, um, in a way, I-, I cannot draw from personal experience about a continuity about these states and having that sort of fundamental quality to them. Um, that being said, I-, I feel that there's something intriguing in these experiences that not only do people report this just feeling of being alive many times, but many times these experiences are also governed by a sense of extreme well-being and a sense of homecoming, a sense of familiarity that arises in them. And, um, you know, it could be that in that feeling of homecoming or, or familiarity, there is something fundamental being reached and something more core fundamental and therefore something that you might call truer. I would then also bring in the kind of like a contrary argumentation. Uh, well, is it feasible to live in that state to, to have just an experience of, of reality with that and then fulfilling our, our basic needs, our creative needs, our, uh, the needs of the species and, and so on. And then it's, it becomes not just like, a, a an element of what is true or what is not true, but what is pragmatic. Um, right. Right. And, right. And along those lines, Chris would be, would be perhaps an introduction to the full spectrum of one's being and not necessarily putting a, a label of supremacy over one state over the other. That, that what we know is this waking state, which I would get, I would 
argue that this is the construct, duality is the construct, and that when we die, we're going through the near-death experience, we're going through the psychedelic experience, we're deconstructing the self-sense, we're deconstructing duality, dropping back into the more foundational dimension of our being. But I don't think that necessarily implies they have to be mutually exclusive. I think what it does is point out um, a deeper spectrum of our identity, that we can we can operate across this particular bandwidth of our, our being, depending on circumstance and, and the like. But the, if we don't have a deeper understanding of this foundational homecoming nature of our being, then we get lost with exclusive identification, with a dualistic arena and all the uh, crap show that ensues upon that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I, that, that is certainly, I think, a, a potential option. I mean, if we look at the beneficial effects of psychedelics, um, and if, if these hold true, after all the work that still needs to be done in clinical science, um, then it kind of makes, it does make sense to me that, that having that bandwidth and cultivating a flexibility in and out of these states, um, regardless of their ontological status, um, appears to be a very healthy thing to do, a very healthy thing to cultivate. So, so there's an elephant in the room here that I think is worth also talking about, um, the connection between mind and brain and the, the famous notion in psychedelic arena. Maybe you can explain it to our listeners of the entropic brain and, and what that actually means. Um, and then we can maybe after that circle back to, um, how directly can we make a correlation between mind and brain? But maybe start with a little bit the, the notion of the, of the entropic brain how that relates to psychedelics and, and why that's of such interest. So the entropic brain is a, is a hypothesis developed by, yeah, who was my mentor, actually, Robin Card Harris at Imperial. And the hypothesis states um, that the richness of subjective experience is mirrored by the richness of brain activity. And an index of that richness would be the level of, the level of entropy or unpredictability when it comes to brain activity. That's fundamentally the idea of the entropic brain hypothesis. Um, so you would have this dual aspect of how we look at this phenomena, the like inherent limitations of the methods that we have. So therefore you would have this duality where you would have mental activity, phenomenology, and you would have brain activity. And the, the idea would be that a, a way to connect this is via the measurement of chaos or entropy. And, um, uh, it became a very straightforward hypothesis in psychedelic states because the idea of the entropic brain is that, you know, these altered states of consciousness, not just psychedelic states, but also near death experience states or psychotic states, initial moments of psychosis in many individuals, and also dream states would function at a higher level of entropy. Whereas, um, conditions of uh, less disorder or higher levels of extreme levels of stability in terms of brain activity and therefore reduced richness of brain activity and phenomenology would lead to certain conditions such as, for example, OCD or depression, where you would have these fixed patterns in the brain and experience. A good idea of this is the idea of rumination that we have these ongoing loops. We all have them in healthy conditions, but somehow we have a level of flexibility that allows us to get out of them. When individuals fall into these loops in a more permanent fashion, this would somehow indicate 
you know, conditions of mental health, such as OCD and depression. So the idea would be that the healthy, normal human brain would operate between disorder and order. And so is it fair to say that a synonym for the entropic brain would be heightened interconnectivity? I mean, the, the capacity for different parts of the brain that aren't normally in conversation with each other now because, you know, the, the parental function perhaps, um, yeah, is, is, is lessened and, and these dimensions of connectivity that are previously not available to us now become available to us. Yeah. It's similar to this idea of, of somehow reducing a filter. Right. And that, you know, these, um, these systems in the brain, such as the default mode network, uh, these high level cognitive structures and, you know, inactive in brain function, when you remove them in the psychedelic state, that will allow connectivity, connectivity patterns to flow more freely, more fluidly. And therefore you would have a hyper connected brain state, very much linked to the idea of chaos or entropy in the brain. I mean, two things come to mind. One is uh, Aldous Huxley's uh, relationship of the brain, referring the brain altogether as a type of reducing valve. I think that's interesting to play with here. And even more overtly, from a kind of a spiritual point of view, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of my main teachers, I never thought about this till you said it, famously said, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. And I never really, it never even, I'm sure it didn't occur to him about the entropic brain. He talked about that in terms of relating to the world when you're actually, when your world comes apart, that in itself can be ripe opportunity for transformation. I mean, Bruce Lipton says crisis sparks evolution. And right. so, so to me, this is very interesting. So it's a little bit like a neurological correlate to this type of uh, experience that is sometimes even invited by psycho spiritual practitioners to reveal, you know, perhaps the, the ways that we super glue the narrative structure of self and other. And, and when we come undone, the superglue comes apart. And, and if you can ride in that open space, that creates a, a good trip, allegedly. And if you can't, that's what creates a bad trip. Because when when the invitation, you know, sometimes it's interesting that the Tibetans talk about wrathful forms of liberation. Um, and there's a, that means a set of practices that are so potent, so prescription strength, so to speak, that they're they're restricted. That's why they usually come within the tantric milieu. And I've come to look, Chris, at, at, at these agents from, from my own limited experience with them as a form of tantra practice for a number of reasons. One mm-hmm. is body. Body is as important with, as mind and tantra. And here we're working with very subtle dimensions of body, ne- neurochemistry and neurology to work with extremely subtle dimensions of mind. And then you also have this capacity to work with, um, raffle and semi-raffle methods of liberation where, you know, non-negotiable, uncompromising. Here you are in a certain sense, being forced to let go. I mean, if, if, right. you, if you try to hold your world, if you try to stay alive, so to speak, when you're dying, that's what creates a bad death and a bad trip. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of truth in this. Um, one of the, the thing that, the things that really come to me as, um, as a, also a key point to having consideration is the idea that yes, crisis uh can provide change but it's fundamentally an opportunity yeah right so it's it's that means it is not a given that you know it will resolve into positive change into adaptive change into healthy change into positive transformation and you know this is the key thing about the idea of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy 
that, you know, this fluid state of the mind, this chaotic state of the mind allows the disengagement of these, you know, hyper rigid narratives. But that also can lead into further problems. So when the, then when the mind or the brain becomes reorganized, the narratives that will come into play into this new structure can be traumatic many times, can be unhelpful. Um, the chaotic brain state in its own right does not automatically lead uh, to something positive. And, you know, in a very, very consistent with uh, the approach of, you know, we we're speaking about Varela before, second person approach is, is really about the cultural, contextual and social structures that are occurring surrounding this psychedelic experience, how they will help this individual navigate these opportunities and these crises are really the, the key element for this to be, you know, a successful experience, uh, if you want to put it in, in more transactional terms. But, you know, an experience that will provide helpful, meaningfulness and safety for the individual. So I'm curious, I mean, this is so interesting. I mean, what comes to mind here, you mentioned this earlier, but we haven't really circled back around it, is the relationship of, of this work, these studies, to, to chaos theory altogether, right? You know, the whole notion of dissipative structures, and that often when, in order for a, situa- a person, whatever, to break through, they often have to break down. In other words, just like you're saying, the the the, the promise and the peril are kissing cousins here, that when things come apart like this, if we don't have the capacity to re, um, reintegrate at higher levels, I think my, uh, what, what a scientist friend of mine, Roger Walsh, once said in relationship to the chaos that was brought about by um, COVID was that the, the default generally when things come apart is, is regressive, not progressive due to the power of habit. We want to slap Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? Right. Yeah. Therefore, if I'm hearing you properly, the set and setting to nurture the dissolution process as an opportunity to reorganize at a higher level of structural evolution is really a large part of what creates, uh, you know, facilitates really growth and development using these agents. A hundred percent. And I'm not of the time. You probably have a, a much better sense of this than I do, but I, I find the hypothesis that, you know, why the psychedelic experience was, was a bit less sustainable in this earlier wave in the 60s and 70s had to do because LSD was a new drug. It didn't have these cultural affordances, you know, that you can see in indigenous cultures that have used psychedelic compounds in plant forms for many, many, many years, generations, generations, building this know-how around how to help navigate the, the navigation of these experiences for whatever means that culture values. And, you know, LSD being a novel kind of compound, the set and setting of it, how being developed on the fly in the 60s and 70s somehow became also unsustainable, you know, including and excluding the political reasons that we might think and speculate about this. And it could be argued that in today's world, most individuals at least have an intuitive sense of, for example, where to trip, where not to trip, you know, what that experience will do. And all the, uh, you know, NGOs and, and privately led sort of harm reduction initiatives are really playing a pivotal, you know, game here in, in providing people this sense of 
you know, what needs to be occurring around that experience for it to be safe and meaningful. And this is why it's also so, so important what is happening today in this discussion of whether or not the psychedelic experience is fundamentally relevant for its beneficial purposes. So you have two camps. One is the idea that it's just neuroplasticity. If we develop psychedelic analogs that don't have the trip in them, you know, we will, we will succeed in somehow reducing, you know, ailments of mental health while at the same time not having to ex- employ these expensive forms of psychotherapy that accompany the experience. And the other camp says, no, experience is important. And if experience is important, then you have to develop a container for that experience. And yeah. in that, the process of therapy is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, that's it. I think that's spot on. You know, I, I'm always drawn to the work of Donald Winnicott, you know, and his whole notion of holding environments. I mean, I think it's just you know, set and setting, the container, Buddhist languaging, the mandala. If the holding environment is there, that's what creates either promise or peril. And, and I haven't thought about it. It's just spot on because 50, 60 years ago, when all this stuff was coming into the West, it was so novel. It was so radical. It was so threatening to the establishment that there wasn't any holding environment for it. And, and therefore, again, regressive. You just like, let's throw this kid off the, off the block. But now, 30, 40, 50 years later, we have a little bit more science. We have more open-minded individuals for it. And, and all of a sudden, now the holding, not sudden, but gradually the holding environment has been reconstructed in a way that can now contain and support this type of thing. And that's, I mean, that's colossal kind of maturation process. I would argue, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I would argue that we are still in that discussion on, on that sort of like, essential discussion in the field of psychiatry of what is the value of experience. And this is where the whole idea of having a science of consciousness, why it's so meaningful, so important, because this is not obvious for many individuals in the field of psychiatry research, right? There, there's still a pervading view many times that, you know, what you need to fix these mental health problems is to just reduce the problem to the level of you know, brain structures, brain processes, and so on. And if you can understand that at the molecular level and then at the systems level, the neuroscience, you can develop technology to fix that directly. And that's it. Um, the more and more we learn about how, you know, mental health works, we more we realize that it's an embedded process with many levels, not just brain, not just body, but also experience at the core of it all in relationship with other individuals uh, in these intersubjective processes. I mean, uh, that's the biopsychosocial approach to mental health, which I think, you know, is, is more and more evidence. Absolutely mandatory. Yeah. The integral approach, the more systemic approach. I, I wanted to circle back to one thing because again, you're hitting on so many such rich topics, <clears throat> but we've had the conver- this conversation in private when we were at, at Esalen. This, this, um, <clears throat> notion that it's still not clear to me, um, Chris, when we're talking about the entropic brain, are we talking about a heightened level of, of brain activity that, in, in fact, creates this entropy? Or is the entropy brought about by reduction in brain activity? Because we are talking about um, other people who assert that what what creates these mystical experiences, these grand openings, is, in fact, not an increase in brain activity, but actually a decrease in the reducing valve, a decrease in brain activity that allows this, this sense of, of connectivity, Oneness, all these spiritual experiences are actually inversely, inversely proportional. <clears throat> to well, 
It's it's a very open question, uh, and it's very much limited by the tools that we have at hand. So, if we look at electrophysiology, which is more direct than fMRI, so we we look at specific recordings of neurons firing. Uh, in humans, we don't find too much increases, uh, but if we look at animal work, uh, we see more and more replication because in animals, you can go deep into those structures, right? This is something that we cannot do with humans. So let, let me we, just interject real quick. You're talking about psychedelic experimentation in animals? Is that what exactly. you're Exactly. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, you see that there's increases in, in gamma and, and high-frequency gamma, which is essentially brain waves that are happening at a high level of frequency. Um, so we find, we do find signals. We have some hints of it. It's true that in most human neuroimaging, we don't find much increase in brain activity per se. Uh, so that's an open question, I would say, uh, whether or not this reducing valve thing is happening at the because there's less brain activity. Um, the other element that I think is very important to, to take into consideration that when we understand more and more the the relationship between mind and brain, we realize more and more that what matters is not so much activity per se. So activity per se, for example, in region A means language. Activity in region B means motion. Activity in region C means visual. The more and more we understand how the brain operates, and especially high-level functions such as decision-making and planning and so on and thinking about ourselves and thinking about others, all all these things that get modulated in the psychedelic experience, all these functions are really a dynamic process in terms of brain activity. And more than how things are lighting up in specific brain areas is more about how they are working in conjunction. So, for example, connectivity is a proxy of that, is a very rudimentary proxy of that, but is a proxy. And we have a range of new methods showing how in the psychedelic experience you find increases in these things. For example, the idea of a hyperconnected brain state. So that would indicate that somehow at the level of the dynamics of the brain, you have an increase in this uh, dynamic quality of what's going on in the brain. And um, depending on your theoretical assumptions, but according to mine, I would argue that that is closer to a proxy of emergence when it comes to mental activity. If we want to put that causal structure there, of course. I mean, it's it's a fiendishly difficult study. And I think there was one person who, I I don't remember the complete data, you might recall, you know, had a near-death experience when he was actually in a scanner. But until you actually can, can somehow get this data, with people who are going near near death experiences, um, um, making the correlations between psychedelics and near death experiences, you know, again, I'm curious, like how how far how far down can you go in making these correlations? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's a very it's a very straightforward empirical matter, actually, and there's a there is a um, there is a recent study that came out by Jimo Borgin where she actually had individuals with EEGs um, at the moment of the death. Four case studies came out in PNAS just a few months ago, and she found that there was a surge of connectivity in gamma in these individuals. So uh-huh. the brain became, there was an co- increasing coherence in this gamma high-frequency state uh-huh. happening at the moment of death. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
um, drawing parallels with, of course, the psychedelic state and these alterations in consciousness. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's intriguing and, and, and in a way there might be similarities and overlaps. Um, but there's, there's also this feeling that I have many times that from our perspectives, our traditions, um, this is all novel stuff for us, the near death experience, the psychedelic state. And it's almost as if we've just zoomed in to the idea of normality and all alterations go in this bag and therefore we homogenize them. We tend to think they're kind of like the same thing. You know, my bet would be is that as we advance these fields and as they become um, appropriate domains of study uh, that could help people in their careers and so on, the better we'll be able to granularize and, and, and understand what are overlaps and differences and, and so on. Yeah. And so along these lines, you know, I guess this is so bloody interesting. One very practical question and then, and then back to some science stuff. So let's say you, you have a, a loved one who is, is a, a struggling with a terminal disease and they're really wigged out. I mean, they're like, this is, they're not going gentle into that good night. I'm curious, um, how you might recommend. I mean, what, what would you do based on your knowledge of using these agents to appease and to calm fear of death? What, how might you counsel someone like that? Uh, with, with this, with psychedelics. Yes, with psychedelics. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. It is more of a, of, of someone. I think it's a question more for a practitioner, I feel. But if I would, you know, based on, like, if I would design that somehow, um, there's an, there's an intriguing, uh, a question being posed by Chris Leatherby, who take, took this from Michael Pollan. So Chris Leatherby does a lot of work of philosophy of psychedelics. Um, and this essential question of whether or not psychedelics are somehow inducing a comforting delusion for the death and dying. Um, and somehow reassuring about the immortality of the soul and, and so on. You know, these questions, I don't have a particular position. I, I do feel that, um, the realm of belief, um, and how different cultures value different realms of belief is up for the specific cultures, right? Uh, but if I would take a more agnostic approach on the whole thing, um, what seems to me to be a valuable element is having the psychedelic experience somehow priming that psychedelic experience in preparation sessions as an opportunity to inquire and reflect upon one's own life, uh, about the process of death and dying, what it means, um, to incorporate that process of death and dying into the process of life, what is remaining of life and how it relates to their relationships. Uh, many times these individuals um, who are in this process of death and dying, apparently what provides suffering or distress is that the process of death is somehow uh, dissociated from their everyday experience, yeah. right? They don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to socialize it. Um, they don't know how to bring it into the process of life. Mm-hmm. And one of the most beautiful findings in the qualitative around this work has been that it's that in that you know in this process 
they find that not only the individuals who are in the process of dying, but their family members report that they can now speak about this with the individual, hmm. that it's become a, a topic of conversation. And I think that that's the, that seems to be the, the central elements, like visibilizing that process, not dissociating from it, providing forms of acceptance and, and, and a way to somehow introduce an existential process that is meaningful. Yeah. 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 It's interesting along these lines as well. I, I, I often look at these within the narrative of, of contraction and expansion. You know, I mean, I think some of tying into what we were talking about earlier that the most, the, the waking state is the most contracted, the most reified, the most dualistic. And then whether it's meditation, I want to get back, uh, re- come to that in just a second. Whether it's meditations, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's, it's near death experience or even death. I mean, I sometimes playfully refer to as death as the grand opening, but it's like Rumi said, you know, opening, um, dropping, opening into wider, wider rings of being. And so as, as one goes through the psychedelic experience, definitely in meditation, and um, I haven't had a near-death experience yet, but there there seems to be some uh, very compelling correlations between you know contraction and openness. And that as we continue to open, we just that that narrative also would would be somewhat explanatory in terms of the entropic brain. That the brain itself is opening to wider dimensions of interconnectivity and that sort of thing. So I'm curious if that if that narrative structure could somehow um, be at least posited as a template for these sorts of journeys. I think I think it can. I mean I think it it it, it kind of jives well with the idea of deconstruction, right? So the the idea of deconstruction as again you you mentioned it there in passing, but I think is the key component, this idea of reifying the narratives, reifying the models as stable, solid, permanent. Uh the idea of life itself as being stable, solid, and permanent. And, you know, uh, in cognitive neuroscience, we know in Buddhist text, uh, you know, they say a similar thing that really there's nothing solid, stable or permanent about life or about ourselves. Uh, you know, the, the sense of self is a, a, a construction that is going on from moment to moment, always being reified. Right. And somehow, you know, especially in these extreme psychedelic states that there is this dropping down, there is this opening. I think what element that also gets a bit overlooked sometimes in psychedelic states, which I also think is quite relevant to mention, is that there are forms of reconstruction in the experience, of reification in the experience that are occurring also. A good example of this is that in DMT states, the experience feels more real than everyday reality and people feel that they are communicating with these entities or beings and entering these altered dimensions and you know, in specific cases, some people do a bit too much DMT, and they become to reify these entities as actual real beings from an alternate dimensions, or they think that these beings are somehow pulling the strings, controlling reality, there's no free will, and so on. And we even have some evidence to suggest that, you know, with extreme psychedelic experiences over time, people appear to be uh, somehow supporting more the idea of a fatalistic, deterministic sort of approach to things, uh, the, supporting the idea of fate. So the psychedelic experience, not just as being this deconstructive thing that enables us to step out of the theater of life and somehow evaluate it or assess it or or just enjoy it, but also something that enables an opportunity to participate a bit more and, and, and 
to reify structures for better or for worse. And it seems that it's this modulation that it's occurring dynamically in the psychedelic experience. Uh, that is something that I feel is really uh, an open space for us to do more research and understand a bit better what is going on. Because also in clinical practice, this will become super, super important. A good practitioner might find that in certain moments, reification of structures or thought patterns or beliefs will become actually quite helpful for the individual. But in the long term, maybe a deconstructive process is more helpful. Or in the long term, training that individual to have a flexibility to move between being immersed and being detached according to whatever the context is requiring might be, you know, a good approach. I think that's bloody fantastic. That's so insightful. And it's also so important because, I mean, there, t- there does tend to be, and I think what you're talking about, Chris, if I read your papers properly, is this deconstruction followed by construction is, is more indicative of a DMT experience versus some other agents. Is that, is that correct? I think it's like, um, we have, I think it, yeah, it's, it's, it's for me is a paradigmatic example of DMT experience of that because, um, it's so intense and because, uh, cultural memes have developed from this experience, the idea of the entities. Therefore, it's easy to somehow visualize it as this. But I think this is happening in psychedelic experiences in a dynamic sense all the time. And it's actually, I would argue the nature of experience itself. This dynamic process of falling in love with little things and in perception and objects and then destroying them, moving on to the next thing. And I, I re, you know, there's a sense that this is also a dynamic of experience that is occurring all the time that just gets magnified in the psychedelic experience. Yeah, you know, the other thing that comes to mind that that we haven't really pinged on at all is how this is connected to um liminal spaces in, in like pre-dream, like liminal dreaming, hypnagogic, hypnopompic spaces, where where one enters this kind of plasma dimension of mind right you're you're not fully reified in the narrative structure of the waking state the self-sense right. storylines coming undone it hasn't completely come undone it, it comes back online interestingly enough in the dream state right so we de-reify in the liminal space we come back online reified so that's another construction thing you deconstruct but you yeah. come back on and now you're reifying the dreaming state yeah so the, I, I was really struck by this because you, you talked about how it is um how did you put it here? We we can find death in life's experiences. And I think this is yet another extension of that. In addition to the psychedelics, we can find death in life experiences by exploring plasma dimensions of mind, deconstructed, constructed, de-reified, reified dimensions, either in meditation, liminal spaces in, in the um, uh, dream and pre-dream, post-dream state. I, I mean, to me, it's just, it creates this wonderful kind of um, array of of experiences that we can relate to and perhaps a new lens that will then in the larger rubric help us understand the play of life and death period which which basically frames the entire show right yeah that's what i would argue is really um kind of like the value of non-ordinary states for us to better understand life and the mind in general is is that it's a perturbation through these processes that we usually, you know, experience all the time, but via perturbation, we may be able to become aware of them. I I think that that's the, 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 but it's at the core of all these different states. And I do feel that it's really not just psychedelics that might have this benefit. I do feel that it's all these other states that you mentioned, such as meditation, hypnagogic, hypnagogic state, I don't know the other word of it, 
uh, you know, these, these, these states that we're not ordinarily experiencing. Um, I, what I find really fascinating about psychedelics, this is something that I've been thinking of lately. It's not really fully fleshed. It's this idea that somehow arousal is elevated in psychedelic states. Mm. Therefore, it really provides an opportunity for that observer to somehow still have a strong engagement with what's happening and therefore being able to report back and, and tell back and, and therefore pro- provide a contribution from scientific standpoint, report standpoint, first person standpoint, and so on. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that, that that makes it a valuable tool as well. It kind of like has a bit of an extra punch, if you will. Yeah, I love it. I love that this notion of, of how it perturbs the narrative again, how it, it's revelatory, as in fact is liminal dreaming. It's rel is revelatory of of the way that that we're constantly reifying, we're constantly constructing. I, I mean, in my languaging, I, I refer to ego as the world's most efficient construction company. That literally, at the speed of sight, we're we're I mean, Varela's terms, we're we're enacting our reality, we're bringing forth even perceptually. Perception is creation, and so to me, I, I mean, it, it's I find this fantastically revelatory because. We're, we're seeing the godlike nature of our minds, you know, yeah. how it is that we have the capacity. We really see this in the dream arena. We really see it in what's called the dream at the end of time in, in Tibetan language. That's Bardo. So underneath this whole thing is Bardo principles. And so to me, it's like we're, we're exploring the, the, almost the, a role as magnificent creators. Again, even in, even in relation to the term psychedelics, mind revealing, mind manifesting. How it is that that we we don't have to be stuck in in this reified dualistic narrative that if we do um, that there's a direct um, correlation to suffering associated with that, but if we realize that we can surf the mind, you know, we can play in the froth of perception in all these different dimensions without necessarily um, trying to find a home. You know, I, another way to talk about this is developing a quality of homeless awareness. Where the, the sense of self can be comfortable with whatever's arising. And, right. and, when the rugs, and when the rugs are being pulled out, that's revelatory. That's, that challenges the narrative structure of the ego. That comes undone in ego dissolution in these agents as we, in deep meditation, as we dream and as we die. And so for me, I, I, I love it because these agents provide yet another, uh, armamentarium, another skill set. That allows us mm. to explore these these um, magnificent dimensions of the mind, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that um, what resonates with me with what you're saying is this this sort of idea that you know it's it's embedded in the tradition of phenomenology that in in the experience that we have of the world, uh, we cannot really separate the observer, the experiencer, in that. Uh, you know, in, in our idea of this external world that we naively think of as fixed, there is a lot of construction. There's a lot of us that we're putting in there. Uh, I would say that the other opposite of that, uh, of that possibility is that everything is a construct, everything is this internal construction, and then we can fall into another form of ground or apparent ground, which is a form of solipsism. And, and, you know, you mentioned the idea of inaction. I think the beauty of inaction is somehow allowing us to be comfortable with an in-between in that, that, you know, we don't have a stable ground either in either of these. Yeah. But somehow 
you're okay with in that. This, in between, there's a dance where we are bringing forth these these worlds of experience, and and this dynamic engagement, active engagement with the world in this dance uh, is potentially where we can grow, where we can develop, and, and where we can find meaning. Fantastic. I mean, again, in, in Buddhist languaging, because that's a reference structure that speaks to me. Basically, what we're talking about here is emptiness. I mean, the emptiness of inherent existence basically means the, the empty of self being full of other. And so we're talking about the the capacity to explore mind and reality, um, which in Buddhist languaging would be emptiness. And so we, you had a little, um, really elegant run on this during the MAPS conference at the very last event when you guys were, um, and I can't remember the, the, the name of the female scientist that was there. The three of you were talking about how how viable is it? Um, because once we start talking about emptiness, we're talking about in Buddhist languaging, you know, the nature of reality. So we're circumambulating this. How viable is it to use psychedelics to to validly explore the nature of mind and reality? I mean, that's one of the things we seem to be walking around here a little bit. I mean, talk yeah. to us a little bit about that as as actual agent for exploring the nature of mind and reality. Yeah, so so I, I'd say that this is an ongoing conversation that we're having in science right now, and science and practice actually, and and psychedelic therapy, whether or not these are valuable tools to understand the nature of the individual minds in the process of psychotherapy, or you know the bigger minds, the 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 nature of mind uh, as human beings. Um. You know, there's there's this element, I think, that I think for me, what is the key element of whether or not there's a contribution here is that by taking a naive approach to the insights that psychedelics provide. So in the untrained, unprepared, unguided sort of experience, there's a lot of insight happening. And if I would place a bet on it, a hypothesis, what's happening is that we are deconstructing these narratives. Well, there's a sense of truthfulness that is somehow linked to an actual deconstruction of the mind, but that there's this is immediately followed by our natural tendency to grasp. So yeah. we fill in that space. We fill it in with the insight. And that content is highly determined by the context, the cultural affordances that that individual has in that, you know, whatever it is around them to put a name. And this is the danger of cults and psychedelics, right? So they use that sense of familiarity, that deconstruction to, de to then put these alternative narratives and use it potentially as a form of manipulation. In a similar but kinder analogy, something similar can be happening around how we do science with these experiences. If we take the experiences face value, uh, you know, we can naively assume that whatever is arising in that experience somehow is true. However, if we mediate those experiences, um, for example, what we try to do is use microphenomenology, which is a technique to somehow interview individuals and understand what is happening in these experiences and somehow pull away what seems to be culturally influenced versus what is properly a phenomenological experience, then maybe we can understand better these phenomenological experiences. What is it about the sense of self that gets broken down in the psychedelic experience and how that relates to the mind, sorry, to the brain, brain processes and brain activity. And maybe we can better understand the sense of self, for example, how it arises and how it breaks down. The same happens, I think, in psychotherapy. 
So in, in, in a naive way of doing psychotherapy, the individual has a psychedelic experience. He feels or she feels or they feel that they become one with everything. And therefore, that is the new reality. Yeah. I'm done. I don't need any sort of explanation. All my problems that I had with my wife or my kids or my brother and the thing with the will, and it doesn't really matter anymore because everything is one and we just need to work on these spiritual matters and, you know, forget all these possessions and so on, which could be conceived as a form of spiritual bypassing. Totally. So it's this in this idea of, I think really the key is this intersubjective character of having someone supporting that psychedelic experience, providing a form of scaffolding by someone who has undergone that process, the promises, the pitfalls, and understand this to then help the individual become aware of their own mental states, mental processes, and therefore allow them to live better. I, I just, I, I completely respect and so love the way you as a, as a scientist um, are able to suss out and be acutely aware of the promise and peril of this whole dimension. Um, and, and the, the untold capacities, um, the promise here is really, I mean, it's, it, it's breathtaking, but it's also not a panacea, right? And so centrifuging out the, the light and the shadow elements and, 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 it's very easy for the pendulum to swing completely, you know, from one direction to the next. We're like, oh, this is the greatest thing since whatever. We put all our eggs in that basket. And then, of course, that basket collapses. And so, therefore, to reinstate again the centrality, the importance of an integral approach, to, to realize that this is a, a really potent set um, of tools within a particular bandwidth of the human condition that really needs to be augmented with set and setting and all these other holding environmental um societal, cultural constructs to create a, 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 a healthy overall package instead of kind of the single action bias thing that, you know, we're just going to load everything up here. So say a little bit more, Chris, about what, what you see as, as the peril here, because of the promise, I think we've hit some really wonderful, um, exciting yeah. side notes, but some of the peril, you know, there, there are bad trips there are um, situations where these um, agents are absolutely positively contraindicated. And so maybe talk to yeah. a little bit about the contraindications for these journeys, some of the, the more skeptical, legitimate um, criticisms of, of trying to put too much in this particular approach. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's great that you're inviting this in the conversation. I think it's so important to talk about it. Um. You know, there's a there's a, um, a specific rule that that we apply in all our studies, and that all of the you know study teams apply in their own studies is that uh, we don't invite individuals uh, or we screen individuals out in our studies who have had a previous psychotic episode or have a first degree family members with schizophrenia or psychosis. Now it's interesting. We don't have actually good evidence still. We don't have numbers to support this, but it has worked so far. So in these controlled studies, we may have had between 5,000 and 10,000 individuals going through them. We don't, I don't know the exact number, but it must be somewhere around that. And we haven't had any reports of a psychotic break coming from these experiences. Now, it could be because of this, but we screen them out. So it may be that the psychedelic experience is not for everybody. It may be that if you want to use psychoanalytic terminology, you need 
structural foundations in terms of personality to be able to have a flexible modulation of that structure, right? Uh, you need maybe some uh, solid sense of self or model or narrative to be able to break it down a bit and play around with it in that experience. That could be one. Um, there's some, you know, we did a, a, a series of case studies where we were we examining one of them, how these experiences can lead potentially to false memories, mm. right? Uh, this feeling of familiarity, what William James describes also the noetic feeling that arises in these outer states of consciousness, being also paired with an apparent memory that can have occurred in the process of psychedelic therapy. You know, I am, I have depression. I don't know where this is coming from. And then boom, the patient has this apparent recollection of being smothered as a child by his mother. The mother was by then, by this moment dead. There was no way of verifying this. So the issue of potential false memories is a real one. It's a real, actual, ethical um, issue, a problem. And this is not new just for psychedelics. This happened also with hypnosis in the 1990s and 80s where series of lawsuits happening because hypnosis was used as actual evidence that could be used in a courtroom around episodes of abuse. So, you know, the way that we phrased it with a couple of colleagues in a paper is this idea that the same experiential quality that appears to underlie the benefits of the psychedelic experience can also provide some of the perils and that it is experiential. It's this quality of experience that appears to somehow provide meaning in the experience, but also misattribute meaning in these experiences. And this can come in the form of apparent truths, trauma, social manipulation, maybe even brainwashing in certain contexts and so on. Um, that's one of the perils. The, from a broader perspective and taking this into consideration, if, is, if we do not regard how nuanced and how delicate these experiences, these mind states are, we also risk neglecting taking appropriate care of these experiences and how delicate they are. And again, I hear, you know, we go back to this discussion around, you know, the usual way in, in, which things are done in, 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 in the classic psychiatric sort of model that these are just brain states. You can just reduce them to, you know, forms of neuroplasticity that we can just tinker here and there. If we disregard the experiential quality, the other side of this coin, then we don't employ the appropriate care in these experiences and how we help people navigate them for them to not be traumatic for them to somehow be managed in case these memories or experiences or false memories can happen and so on. So I think that this is the, the fundamental quality that these experiences, the experience themselves, you know, provides opportunities, but also risks. It really comes down to this issue of, um, again, veracity, truth, you know, like how, how true are these experiences? Because on one level, we, we guess, um, and I think appropriately we guess, uh, this idea of consensual reality. Um, but on another level, if there, if there aren't, um, I mean, I'm not sure standardized is the right word, but if there aren't references to 
something that's not on a sliding scale of experience, then, then in fact, you don't have waking up experiences. You have psychotic experiences, right? I mean, then, then the lack, the lack of structure, the lack of reference points, um, becomes really completely problematic. And so, you know, it's interesting because they, they talk about also in, in, in the lucid dreaming, the, the, are there, are there any contraindications, contraindications for people for lucid dreaming? And, and it's really interesting. One, one would be a, a person who has derealization potentialities, derealization disorder potentiality or depersonalization potentiality. This is super interesting to me because on one level, derealization and depersonalization are what in Buddhism would be called twofold egolessness, cutting through the sense of other. That would be derealization. That's a good thing to do. Cutting through the sense of self, that's depersonalization if it becomes a disorder. So to me, I find this super interesting because it shows you just how delicate this line is between um, psycho- psychosis and, and awakening. That on one level, derealization on a spiritual level is a really good thing. On another level, it can be a really dangerous thing because it can lead in, into states like psychosis. And so these are also things that can be explored in the psychedelic arena. Hundred percent. I, I I completely agree, and and I think these are the things that actually it's very interest, interesting. I'd say in the past two three years, there's more and more efforts to visualize the bad side, uh, the negative side. What are the actual risks? Because even though, even if we take an average sort of approach, this whole thing, you know, maybe there's a net positive element in it. But those bad cases are very, very costly. They induce a lot of suffering and therefore are quite unacceptable. So I think this is all about us understanding better what are the conditions in which these, you know, potential adverse effects are minimized. Yeah. You know, crises are opportunities, but can also lead to further damage. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Problems are opportunities in disguise, but sometimes they're, they're real issues. And so, you mentioned this term, Chris, but let's come back to this a little bit um, because uh, it, it's so critically important that, you know, I, I mean, we were talking a little bit about peril. You know, one, uh, I think, very perilous uh, consequence of these agencies, one can become a state junkie, you know, because yeah. you just, they bring about particular states, particular yeah. experiences. And then, and then you, instead of working to integrate and stabilize, then you just want to have more of that state. You become a state junkie. So yeah. to, to transform states into traits, the issue of integration is, is so key here. Can you talk to us a little bit about what to do on the front end and the back end to facilitate this key transformation of states into traits? And integration, because this is the major criticism from the spiritual traditions that this yeah. is just cheap, quick fix, chemical mysticism. Exactly. And, and, and you know, I have to share with you when I when I went down and did um, my ayahuasca journey last year, um, I spent a week at a place, and I was talking to a gentleman there who was who was one of the main people at the center, and in 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 idle conversation, I said, "Oh, you know, I'm curious, how many of these ayahuasca ceremonies have you attended?" He goes, "I don't know, four hundred. And, and it was like, yeah. uh, okay, right. And then, you know, his, his definition is why, why do the meditation thing? I can just go into the Maluka and have this experience. And I had to really bite my lip and go, I don't think so. So talk to us a little bit about pre and post 
um, briefly protocols to help work with this critical integration and corporation narrative? Yeah, I mean, it's just such an important question. I think, you know, the issue is very much linked to our culture of commodifying these states, right? So it's like, in the same way that we can buy anything, we can buy mind (laughs) and and grasp it and keep it and you know and then repeat it and and i agree i mean this happens all the time many times in the circles um but going back to your your specific question i think it's you know going back to the idea of a container right a container of the experience and how we help people scaffold them so that they can cultivate trade um yeah a key component in this is this this notion of preparation to the experience and the preparation process you know the classic approach would be that you have a couple of sessions where you have people you know develop some form of aim together with a therapist in the clinical context um and they set common goals for that therapeutic session um people are informed about how the psychedelic experience works what to do in cases of anxiety reactions or fear reactions that are common to occur, seeing them as opportunities. Many times, you know, the classic indication is that if you're confronted with the monster, ask the monster what does he or she want and invite that experience in and go through that experience. Uh, developing a relationship with trust with this other who is guiding the session that is one of the key, key components to ensure safety. Somehow providing this sense that this will be a playground of the mind where it can get scary, but that you will be contained. There are boundaries to this game. Um, so that's usually happening in these preparation sessions. And in the integration sessions, what's happening after the session itself is that the individual is... Um, having more therapy sessions, essentially, is what they are, where they are able to solidify the new narratives, the new models that will come and operate in their lives, or the flexibility between these models that will come and operate, um, where they bridge back whatever has been shown to them or what they have learned and psychedelic experience to their everyday lives. Um, in my opinion, in an ideal world, these experiences are integrated into larger existential processes. Therefore, they're not just seen as a specific state um, that is somehow grasped and then fetishized in years to come in the remembrance of that experience. But that is more like a moment in which individuals are allowed to cultivate a specific aspect of the mind in a stronger or more directed fashion. It's an opportunity to cultivate further. So this would put the idea of the psychedelic experience within a broader path of developments of traits rather than just a specific state. Um, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. A bit abstract, but it's no, an no, essential no. idea. No, yeah. and so, Chris, is it, is it, are, are there any um, standardized formal or informal approaches to um, Going back to the well every now and again. I mean, so you have an experience. It's a very powerful pointing out, a very powerful uh, state experience. Um, do you have general recommendations? Again, not not so much now as a researcher, I suppose, but as a clinician or even a practitioner for um, 
the viability, the frequency of returning. Because I think right. you know there there is there is something there's the too many experiences can be problematic, perhaps not enough. Um, I would say we problematic, but insufficient. So returning to the well every now and again. I mean, are there any standardized protocols around that, or does is it all idiosyncratic? Does it really depend? Well, at the time, there, the, the, we don't have much. It doesn't exist much. I mean, what the data is suggesting that is that you know when people have strong when there's strong cases of depression, for example, it seems as the symptoms go back after three to six months. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the you know the way that people usually do it anyway, most of the time, most of the people that do it, if they have a stable practice, it's usually twice a year. Now, this is not a recommendation that I would give to people. It's just you know what the data suggests in general. Unfortunately, there's no long-term studies on repeated ingestions and on, on how to help individuals stabilize when they have a, a recurring form of depression and so on. When it comes to the use of psychedelics as a more of a personal development tool, we have even less data uh, to indicate. And therefore, and we would also need to understand what are the right indicators. Um, And this is work that still needs to be done. So unfortunately, yeah, I'm not a clinician, so I kind of speak from my my clinical clinical perspectives. It gets slippery stuff. Well, so Chris, as we start start to close this up, because I want to respect your time, I do want to return briefly um, and unpack a little bit more the role of these agents in terms of um, uh, catalyzing meditation. Because There was a, a line in one of your papers that really struck me, psychedelic-assisted meditation practice. I had never heard that term. <laughs> right. And you know, it was like, well, this is, I mean, on one level, it, it, it intuitively made complete sense to me. But maybe talk to us a little bit about um, psychedelic-assisted meditation practice and, and what that means to you um professionally as as a research scientist or whatever yeah i mean it's it's hard i mean some some individuals have crafted a, a you know a few papers around this this sort of idea that there there could be a meaningful synergy between different forms of meditation practice and psychedelic states um many individuals in the 60s that went into meditation who are now roshis or you know different um levels of, of meditation advancement, they started off with psychedelic practice, with, with psychedelic states. Um, so there certainly seems to be uh, a meaningful synergy and um, the idea that somehow the states are somehow a, a gateway, literally a gateway drug to cultivate the mind into traits via the form of meditation. Um, um, there are, you know, some individuals that have talked to me, um, in not any official capacity that they sometimes use, for example, 5-MeO-DMT to help them meditate, you know, very low doses. Mm. Uh, some people speak about microdosing as a way to help specific forms of meditation practices. The synergies are still unclear. We still don't have enough data to understand, um, you know, protocols or to understand how is it that people benefit from the, from the combination of the two. But there is certainly a large number of practitioners who employ both as means to cultivate the mind in different ways. Um, but precisely how this is still work to be done. So theoretically, or maybe this has happened because I wasn't even aware of the EG studies with, with, uh, um, with death. That's a new one to me. But, um, if there are studies here, I'm not aware of them, but if you were, 
to look at a scanner and you, you didn't realize you have a subject in the scanner, the fMRI. <laughs> and in, in one instance, somebody was having a mystical experience and they were being scanned. And in the second scanner, they're having a DMT experience and they're being scanned. And, and you're doing a double, you're doing a blind. Right? So you're looking at the results. You don't know which was which. Would you be able to tell? Could you tell the, the neural signatures of who's, of who's going through what? Which one's having the mystical experience and which one's going through the DMT? I mean, how isom- how, how similar, how isomorphic are these? Well, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. We, we have some emergent evidence, um, that, you know, there could be some advanced meditation practices, um, that could lead to similar states with an EEG. Uh, my bet would be, however, that whatever state is generating a much stronger effect in terms of changing connectivity patterns, especially generating this hyper state of connection would be more that DMT state. Alternatively, if I were to focus my analysis on the visual cortex, that would potentially reveal to me more when having when someone is having a, a psychedelic experience versus a spontaneous mystical experience. Because it seems that specifically DMT is incredibly visual and it has this immersive visual component that doesn't appear to be as prevalent as with spontaneous mystical states. Although some individuals do report them, but it certainly doesn't seem to be the norm. I mean, you have, I'm sure you've heard these stories, you know, Neem Karoli Baba, right? Ram Das goes to give his teacher 600 micrograms of white lightning and yeah. basically nothing happens, right? So that, that, that's an interesting, okay. I mean, is this guy already at this kind of neurological state or wherever the state of mind where these agents really have no, no, no impact any longer? But I, I have to say one thing around these, this experience as well. Apparently Karoli Baba went, he was, uh, had this experience. He said something like at the end, uh, what do you think? He goes, well, it's good, you know, psychedelics. He says something like, oh, good for beginners, but better to love and feed the poor or something like that, which I thought was fantastic, right? Better to love than feed the poor. Oh, no, better to love and feed the poor. In other words. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Instead of like, I mean, I thought that was just such an elegant way to talk That's about true. putting this thing in perspective. No, I completely but, agree. You hear all these anecdotal things and, and, you know, when I had my, one of my experiences on one level, um, there was nothing particularly new. Um, and I haven't, I don't play very much with these. Um, one set of experiences like, well, this is really interesting. This is, this is really highly analogous to what happens when I'm in retreat for three months. Amazing. And so I think it would be super interesting to collect the, this kind of data, um, to bring it in there because then, boy, that, I mean, that just adds even more traction to the potentialities of these. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, this is one of the things that we're, we're, we're going to start now. Um, you know, we're starting to interview these, these practitioners that achieve these non-dual states, understanding better, you know, the, the qualities of these when they happen in these long retreat sessions. Um, and then we have another component where we are actually, you know, giving some of them five methoxy DMT. Um, and, 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 you know, also assessing their brain state during these, uh, immersive meditation states. So this is, you know, such an exciting open field, uh, to be doing science right now. And then apparently we may have some openness to do it. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And this, this leads me to, to, again, one of my final questions is 
when you look in the crystal ball, when, when you look into the future, two things. What is it that excites you the most? And what is it that concerns you the most? Wow, this is an excellent question. Um, uh, so I think what, what excites me the most is, um, is precisely this, uh, you know, like the way that we are all improving our understanding, our methods, our collective collaborations. I feel that psychedelics can truly provide good insights into the field of consciousness science, into an understanding of the mind and the experience that will come out of that and the in a way the way that that is framed, I, I, I'm very hopeful about that. Um about that avenue forward. And certainly it feels a as a, as a meaningful place to put a lot of energy in. Uh what scares me the most is um the 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 potential negative cases that might occur um the development of, of novel psychedelics that are promised to work equally as well but don't have an experiential component and therefore have a reduced effect and that somehow bursting a bubble that would be an unfair burst because there are different compounds not providing the same experiences. Um, and the potential negative cases, yeah. the massification of the experience, the fetishization, the fetishization, if it's saying yeah. correctly, all of these states, uh, based on our, on our current culture of our understanding of how things operate. Um, I feel that it is an opportunity to wider, widen our understanding of what experience is, how to look into it, how to understand it, and how to care for it in a better way. Yeah. Um, and I think this is both where the promises and perils are. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I have to ask, because all my clinical friends who work underground in this area would be um, uh, on me if I didn't ask this, but you, again circumambulated this, but maybe a little bit more explicitly, how does your work um, impact the clinical implications of using these agents? So we, we've been we've been suggesting a number of um, of ways that this can be done, but I'm, I'm curious if you can throw a more specific dart into this. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think going back to this, this point of, of, you know, you know, what is it that we're finding out more and more in the neuroscience of it and, and, and the quality of these experiences and, and what they tell us about the human mind and, and also the perils in it is that these experiences occur in context. These are not isolated events in the brain. Uh, and the fundamental quality of them is their experiential nature. So the clinical implication of that is that in order for us to make these experiences safe and meaningful, is that they have to occur in an intersubjective context. They require other humans who have undergone these experiences and can help others go through them. This is what we call apprenticeship. apprenticeship. This, this, this is a form of, you know, this is, uh, and we have so much knowledge accumulated in different traditions, not all of them useful for the context of psychedelic therapy, but many is very useful and has been used. But I think having an awareness 
that this is a form of embodied practice in which intuition has to be cultivated to do that practice in the form of psychedelic therapy is no simple thing, no simple task. Um, so that would be the, the, you know, the essential thing that comes out of the work, uh, part of what I've done that I think is, is, is applicable to clinical practice. Yeah, it's fantastic. And again, yep, a final time reinstating the importance, the centrality of, of set mindset and setting. I mean, it, it seems almost cliche, but boy, it's a big deal because nothing arises in a vacuum. Everything is, is, is created by these holding environments. And so the more this can be held, supported by the views and the extraordinary science and the work that you're doing with your colleagues, Chris, is, it's, I mean, it's just amazing. You know, I mean, it's, just, it's a fantastic time. And, and so how, in, in terms of the work that you're doing, you know, there's this, um, this jingle, I can't remember where I first heard it, but you can always tell who the pioneers are because they're the ones with all the arrows in their back. And so I'm curious, how many arrows do you get in your back for doing this kind of work? Or, or are, do you, is it more because of the environment now, 50 years after the fact is, is the support even within the scientific community because the data is there is accumulating. Are you getting more and more both financial and, um, uh, scientific academic support in doing this kind of leading edge work? Well, yeah, it's a interesting question. I, I think I I began doing this work around nine, ten years ago, um, and at that time there was more. It was it certainly was it was more popular than doing this in the eighties or the nineties, but uh, it was still kind of like a countercultural thing to do. And um, in, in many circles, it's, it was considered a form of career suicide. Yeah, I wonder. Things yeah. have changed, and um, we're in a process of hype around psychedelics, and that has led also to an over sort of like um, expectation many times of what this can provide. And there's more funding opportunities, and you know, there's more recognition by peers and colleagues, and so on, and, and that's really good. But at the level of academia, it's still precarious. Uh, getting a position purely based on work with psychedelics is still very, very rare to find. Um, so, so I think that that's still, you know, we, we have this generational gap. You know, there's a lot of research in the sixties, seventies, and many of these people, you know, they get, but we don't have a lot of mentors in that intermediate gap that can provide the scaffolding into the more institutional uh, um, sort of positions. Uh, that being said, I am extremely grateful to be able to do this work. I'm extremely passionate about what I do, and I get to do it every day of my life. So yeah. I can't really complain. My, you know, just in, in, in closing, and my, my view around these agents has radically changed over the last year and a half. I mean, I, I I'm, I was trained in, in my spiritual training in a very conservative, toe the line. I always looked askance at this kind of chemical mysticism thing as a kind of a cheap, easy way to go through it. But because of a set of experiences somewhat forced upon me because of some health issues, I mean, my view on these agents has done a complete 180. I, it radically transformed. And so when I look at, I, I wanted to close with this. When I look at the 50,000 foot view, you know, you look way up higher. This world is obviously we're in a dark age. There's so much going on that is so um, problematic. But 
there are some amazing lights and revolutions taking place. One is the, the mindfulness revolution, the meditation yoga thing. It's unbelievable what's happening. Co-immersion with the darkness is this light. And I think somewhat similar co-immersion with it, along with the mindfulness revolution, is, is the psychedelic renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, um, it's an, an amazingly fertile, rich time. And I remember at the conference that we were both at, there were two major schools. And I'm curious, I, I suspect I know which one you're landing on. But there was one school, one camp that said, we can't wait. You know, we, we got to get this out. We got to, you know, almost like the Timothy Leary thing, put it, put LSD in the water system, right? We can't wait. Everybody's got to get out there. And then, as you might suspect, the scientists coming in and saying, hey, wait a second, wait a second, slow down. Let's not screw this up again. Let's, let's do this thing right. Um, and so with your work, Chris, you're, you're helping the Renaissance do it right. And, and so, um, any final comments from your side? Anything I didn't ask? Anything that you think is worth sharing that we didn't ping on? Uh, now, from for my end, it has been a total pleasure and delight uh, to just hang out with you uh, for this hour and, and be able to chat more deeply about these things that, you know, we touched upon a bit on Esalen. And so it's really a great opportunity. I'm very happy with it. Thanks so much. Well, Chris, I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. It's just such a delight. I always learn so much when I chat with you. So thank you so much for spending time with us. And maybe we'll re- revisit the situation again in a couple of years and see where the state of the art is right now. But you're certainly part of it. And it's just a, an honor to get to know you and spend time. So thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a big thanks to Chris for sharing his wisdom with us. We hope you're enjoying these Edge of Mind podcasts as much as we enjoy producing them. Please do spread the word, rate the podcast, review it, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into this community, into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts. 